Welcome to Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. Thrive is brought to you by a team of junior doctors asking great questions and producing essential education. In 2022, we're excited to bring you more content and help you become a more confident, capable doctor. I'm Emma, an ED physician and supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, and I love seeing junior doctors grow. So let's jump right in. Welcome to another installment of Thrive. I'm Andrew Lim, a critical care registrar at Eastern Health, working as an anaesthetics registrar currently. I have particular interest in medical education, anaesthesia, and pain medicine, stemming from my previous career as a pharmacist running a methadone program. It was enlightening to see pain medicine from a new perspective as a doctor and learning from expert pain specialists such as Dr. Gloria Sear. Dr. Sear is a dual qualified specialist as a fellow of the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists and a fellow of the Faculty of Pain Medicine. Gloria graduated from the University of Melbourne and undertook her specialist anaesthesia training at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. Gloria has done further subspecialty pain fellowships at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, the Alfred, Barbara Walker Centre for Pain Management, and the Royal Women's Hospital. Welcome, Gloria. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Acute pain is a debilitating symptom that is extremely important to understand for junior doctors. It's sometimes referred to as the sixth vital sign. However, unlike all the others, it's largely subjective, difficult to measure, and perhaps more complex than any other in its origins. It is managed by junior doctors typically multiple times a shift. However, the mismanagement is common. This is part two of a two-part series on pain, where in part one we discuss the definition, evaluation, and basic management of pain. In part two, we provide a deeper insight into pain management and the side effects of opiates and other key medication, and also look into the effects of poor opiate prescribing and touch on the advanced management of pain with the pain team at the hospital. Um. We were just divulging really quickly into the simple analgesia. You were talking about maybe paracetamol and NSAIDs. We do use them every day. Uh, are there any particular keynotes that we should keep an eye out for those things? Uh, uh, I mean, for sure, we know the toxicity profile for uh, for paracetamol is, is well known, of course. Um, and uh, as well as, you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, I mean, there are comorbidities that probably uh, you should be um, taking into consideration before you decide to prescribe uh, some of them. But I think, you know, if, if say the indication were really strong, it's important to communicate with your patients exactly how much the length of time um, and how you would like them to, to take these medications. So if it's only for three days, be very specific that it's only for three days and to be discontinued after, uh, and if they need to be prescribed, be prescribed something like Nexium um, or PPI just for um, GI protection, that they should be given that to go home as well. That's for the um, NSAIDs, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And mm. then for the paracetamol, I mean, with liver function, look, you know, a one soft dose, um, again, like harking back to that prior example, mm. if they're competing priorities and the gastroenterologists um, have concerns for that, re- you know, it's all about making a balanced plan, right? Um, if you're being overha- like heavy-handed with the opioids because they, in inverted commas, cannot have paracetamol, that's mm. not ideal either. So sometimes it's a bit of a discussion, mm. um, but I would say ongoing use for 
pain that is getting better mm. um, is probably not indicated. So that's why it's important to always review your patients. Um, and if you need to, if it's if the pain service can offer that frequent review, then they can sometimes review the patients twice a day if necessary. I mean, things like that. You know, there mm. are there are options out there to make um, therapy safer. Now, going back to opiates now, uh, uh, with regards to the opiates, they can cause a lot of harm as well, including drowsiness, respiratory depression. Um, uh, sometimes we do start to overprescribe them a little bit. Unfortunately, there's a few bodies saying that we're part we're part of this opiate crisis. Uh, w- what does this mean, and how can should this impact our prescribing? Yeah, so um, um, the opioid crisis was sort of, um, you know, started, has had its roots in North America, I guess. And um, for those of you who sort of watch Netflix and um, are into the audiobooks, um, you know about, you know, the the Empire of Pain, which is um, a recent um, uh, biopic about the Sackler family, for example. And so, like, you know, in the 80s and so on, there are lots of very aggressive campaigns about, um, the use of you know oxycontin, for example, and and um, being marketed as a drug that was a cure-all for pain with no addiction um, potential, but mm. we now know that that's not the case. So you know it's drivers of of, of overprescribing, misprescribing. Um, but the reason why it's it's a crisis is because a lot of people were dying from from o- opioid overdose um and you know the numbers are staggering it's in the millions in the states and um because it's created such an addictive potential mm. you've got patients then misusing street drugs like heroin and fentanyl for example mm. um and 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 overdosing uh, and dying from those reasons as well so you know when you sort of think about the opioid crisis you're thinking you're, these individuals are getting their opioids in some dank street corner Mm. When the reality is that the problem is starting in a sterile, you know, brightly lit office in a medical center where they're getting their prescriptions mm. um, from a doctor. Or, or, so, or, an, or an ED where new doctors are prescribing and, and sending patients home, right? Yeah, correct. So mm. it's about, you know, not um, it's overprescribing because of a lack of education and not recognizing the harms. Um, and that's, again, one of the reasons why the real-time prescription monitoring is something that's um, uh, a push towards safer prescribing um, and um, the statements being released by the College of Anesthetists about the harms of slow-release opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's about sort of not prescribing opioids for longer that you need, disposing of it correctly, as I'm sure you know, um, Andrew, and... Um, yeah, and just being educated. Um, so, sorry, back to the original question. So it had its roots in North America, and we're, we're concerned that it's mirroring similar um, uh, scenario, and it's it's sort of happening on our shores as well. And, I mean, the, the rates of opioid um, prescription are just increasing in Australia, mm. um, and we're just careful not to exacerbate the problem um, mm. and have a situation where we end up like, um, like North America. Mm, okay. No, that's really important to note. Another great series is the Amazon Prime series, Dope Sick, a great primer in the function of the pharmaceutical industry in medication advertising or promotion, is fascinating viewing and will make you think twice about your prescribing patterns. We've already sort of touched on um, touched on what 
things to look out for when we're prescribing for uh, simple analgesia. Um, you mentioned uh, paracetamol, you mentioned NSAIDs and gastrointestinal ulceration. Um, we've also touched on opiates and, and how we need to be weary of over-prescribing them. Um, uh, unfortunately, I've, I've had the experience of, of uh, talking to methadone patients who um, have never used these medications prior to getting on this uh, opiate train, so to speak, uh, after they've had a fracture or something 20 years ago and they just haven't been able to stop since. Um, so it's quite sad and, and something that we really need to address. So thanks for enlightening us there. Basically, addiction arises frequently from medical prescribing rather than recreational use. We have a key role to play in preventing this. Before we move on, were there any other key things to note about medication and anything else we should know about the patient before we prescribe um, that you wanted to highlight, Gloria? Well, I'm not sure. I think I've covered most of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd be belaboring the point, I guess, in terms of um, a targeted um, assessment of the patient. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, you know, sort of individualizing it according to you know, the, the uh, comorbidities the patient has, uh, mm-hmm. renal or liver impairment, mm. um, um, you know, and also sort of cognitively um, making sure that they're, um, you know, not being over-sedated, for example. Um, I mean, these things are, you know, will come out or should come out through um, the, doc- the clinician's initial assessment. Mm. Um, and, you know, if in doubt or, you know, for whatever reason, it's good to sort of discuss it, um, even just the things about dispensing and things. Some I find some of the ph- our pharmacy colleagues are quite uh, useful uh, in mm. a hospital setting in terms of telling you what's on formulary, what's a safer option, things like that. Have a conversation. I mean, and, and always if you want it, we always say always ask for help, mm. um, which is true, which is great. But I think you should also um uh, form an assessment um, and ask for help um, appropriately, I guess. Yeah. Mm, I, I like that approach. And talking about prescribing, um, what what are the most common errors in prescribing? Aside from over-prescribing, is there anything that uh, you wanted to highlight for our, uh, our team out there? Uh, sure, Andrew. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the um, the nitty gritty, uh, I think our pharmacy colleagues can weigh in <laughs> on a lot of the uh, common errors in prescribing. Um, so I'm loath to sort of encroach there. But I guess, you know, certain things like, um, you know, in you know, an acute pain setting, you know, not co-prescribing uh, long-acting opioids together with something with a background um, opioid infusion, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our regional anesthesia uh, catheters um, can run with fentanyl mm-hmm. uh, in background um, and to sort of prescribe a slow-release um, strong opioid with that would kind of not be um, ideal. Mm-hmm. Um for example, um, you know, uh, again, you know, co-prescribing things like panadine fort as a PRN with um, like regular tarjan again. Um, and that, that is, has codeine not, in it, isn't it? That panadine That's fort. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just uh, um, because then it can kind of, um, I mean, again, it's, it's very individualized. Um, but, I mean, we see sort of panadine fort being prescribed less and less now. Mm. Um, and, um, so that, those are the sort of things, the things that sort of come, um, front of mind. Mm. Um, 
you know, other prescribing, I wouldn't say errors, but I think you want to be, you want to be cautious in patients who are, you know, uh, outliers in terms of physiological parameters. So not taking into account a patient's body weight, for example, is, um, you know, because you know, usually we just sort of look at a patient, I guess, but, um, you know, just be mindful of patients who are very underweight or very overweight. Um, right. That might be uh, something to, to consider mm-hmm. uh, and age as well. With with age, you know, there's no harm in um, starting with a low dose. And um, because of um, changes in physiology, it does take a bit, it does take time for um, the medications to reach a therapeutic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very easy to exceed that um, therapeutic window with the elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with those patients, it's important to... Um, to put in to document really strict monitoring parameters hmm. as well. Um, you know, patients who uh, are, um, may not be able to request um, PRN medication because of um, uh, communication difficulties or challenges, it might be worth um, sort of documenting a nurse initiated uh, medication, obviously within safe, appropriate windows, you know, so things like that. Cause I often, you know, encounter, um, because if you write PRN on the back mm. of the chart, um, the, the patients may not know, know that in order to get adequate pain relief, they actually have to request it. So again, being really, really mindful of um, what what this, what is what goes into getting the therapy into your patient, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just those are just come, some of the, I guess, things offhand that come to mind. Yeah. Funnily, you mentioned those things because I have, I've been through that myself where I, sometimes I feel like um, I haven't counseled the patient appropriately about using these PRN medications I've charted. So they didn't even know that was there. They didn't know they could request it. Or I've, I've haven't thought about the fact that the patient um, can't communicate clearly. Uh, they might have cerebral palsy. So, we really need to work as a team together with a patient and a nurse and yourself and communicate and, and really get the patient the analgesia they need uh, when they need it. So uh, that's that's a different mind space to think about uh, when prescribing. So thanks for elaborating and touching on that, Gloria. Um, so one thing that I found uh, tricky throughout the years was actually PCAs. Sometimes HMO prescribing is, is not enough. And PCAs or other advanced pain strategies such as steroids or clonidine um, should be considered. How do we identify the patients that need these and uh, how do we refer them to the acute pain service? Yeah, look, um, you know, I think it's it's helpful to understand that um, the, you know, the staff within um, the acute pain service um, comprises of a senior consultant clinician um, a, a registrar or resident, um, and um, you know the con- the constant, the consistent presence of the the acute pain nurse um, is always there from Monday to Friday, um, and they're generally on, across all things all, during the week. Even though the the senior um, consultant um, anesthetist may may change from day to day, um, and so um, as a sounding board for advice. Um, I think the acute pain service are useful for a um, just you know seeking advice. You might not necessarily want them to come and see your patient, um, but they can certainly give you some advice over the phone. 
Hmm. Um, or B, you actually do want them, you're like, I want you to come and see my patient. It's a formal consult, please. It's a request for a formal consult. So I think, you know, um, it's they're very good as a, a resource um, and also as a, a specialist consult service. You know, even though you may not necessarily think this patient needs to be seen, but I think it's always, it's it's a good resource to have to discuss any concerns you may have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're a good um, um, uh, source of advice there. Uh, I am mindful that from day to day, this stylistically, um, the clinicians might differ. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, as a service, we are able to provide some advanced care therapies Um if we know about these issues beforehand, for example, you know, say an elderly patient has not been responding well to increasing doses of opioids, mm. and there's pretty much nothing else you can do on the ward as, apart from giving them um, a regional block, mm. then it's something that we would like to know early. Um, so that's why I say I think it's a sensible approach to use the APS both as an advisory um capacity in an advisory capacity Hmm. um as well as you know some very clear-cut indications okay i need to refer this patient to you because of you know abc reasons Hmm. um that makes sense yeah is it after hours would you also consider um uh, calling our anesthetic colleagues as well uh the anesthetic registrar on call they um from that from that perspective uh would they be able to provide good advice about analgesia management for complex pain patients overnight uh, in the meantime. Yes. Do you think that's a good resource? Look, um, I think that, you know, anesthesia as a specialist um, hospital service mm. um, definitely adds a different, an addition of different skills sets to what the ward-based doctors have. It's another layer of support. Just call them. They may be able to add, um, uh, you know, valuable input. Mm. Um, and at nighttime when resources are scant, um, I would say err on the side of caution and ring the anesthesia registrar. Um, mm. You know, we have made um, allocations for um, part of their duty, you know, so part of their duties is to support the ward for any, you know, any pain needs. Mm. Um, so okay. you shouldn't feel like they're too busy to take your call. Um, we actually take things very seriously if, say, um, things weren't escalated or weren't discussed in a timely fashion. So don't mm. ever feel like you couldn't speak to them because they were too busy. Amazing. Um, and just diving quickly into the the pain, um, the complex pain strategies that we were alluding to, that the APS has uh, an ability to prescribe like PCAs, um, uh, blocks, and maybe more complex uh, medications. Um are there any particular that you wanted to highlight are there indications roles or complications that they should know about really briefly or do you believe that that's uh, quite a big topic and should be uh, alluded to in another another podcast do you think uh look i think as a craft group in anesthesia we're working towards sort of a more streamlined approach to things that have evidence base and can move the patient's journey along more quickly things like long bone fractures or hip, you know, hip fractures, uh, rib fractures. So we're looking at sort of um, coming up with a more streamlined approach and when to refer patients on for um, a a rectus spinae block, for example, not to get too technical, but. um, Mm. uh, That's for rib fractures, isn't it? Rib fractures and, um, you know, for fascia iliaca catheters and things like that, more advanced therapies Mm, where, mm. you know, we know that strong opioids, um, you can only, you know, it's much better if there's a multimodal approach. Yeah. Um, 
So um, without going into too much detail, just be aware that there are some patients who uh, have a very you know narrow therapeutic window and um, over-prescribing opioids is only going to really get them sort of there and it's not going to be quite ideal. Um, so referring those patients on um, early is important, um, but we are as a craft group coming up with a more streamlined um, referral process and management process for that. Mm, okay, so watch this space. Uh, actually, Glory, as we were talking, I've got a particular question myself that maybe I wanted to share with the doctor cohort that's out there. And um, I think that the non-pharmacological side is is sometimes um underestimated in its value and you've really highlighted on the psychological side of things um but other management things such as immobilization or heat packs or a bit of ice um even something like a voltaren gel um sometimes can also lean its way into the psychological side of things as well do you think that's that i'm saying the right oh, thing absolutely. there or? absolutely and i think that you know again this is part of the multidisciplinary approach to care mm-hmm. um in the acute in hospital setting um good nursing communication yeah. you know empower okay. your nursing staff to say that you know this is what i'd like you to do for this patient yeah. And they will, some nursing staff are quite um, proactive and they will do that. Yeah. But if you can show some support in what they're doing is, um, you know, r- rowing in the same direction as you, they'll be empowered and more likely to show more care um, for your patient um, yeah. and doing those exact things that you said. And because the nursing staff are there, you know, whereas we just kind of come in and out on a round, yeah. you know, they are the eyes on the patient for you and they'll be able to monitor them yeah. Um, and their response to treatment as well. So I think th- those are fantastic strategies. Um, and it's certainly something that you can communicate to your nursing staff um, to support the rest of your, you know, the other strategies that you've recommended. Yeah, so I think that's great. Thanks, Gloria. Uh, and the multidisciplinary team that you were mentioning about the psychology team, the allied health, the nursing staff, uh, the pain specialists, uh, your consultants, um, your colleagues, it also includes um, the patient themselves, as you've highlighted at every step of the way. And finally, it's it's a safe bet that uh, the majority of our junior doctors listening will be prescribing analgesia for acute pain on their very next shift. If you were to leave them with the take-home points, what would they be? I'm just going to be giving you two take-home things. I think my, mm-hmm. my brain only works like in twos. So <laughs> yeah. I would say I would divide it in terms of pearls for assessment and pearls for management. Okay. Yep. In terms of assessment, um, I would um, strongly uh, recommend that um, doctors use um, a social psychological, uh, social psychobiological framework in their assessment mm-hmm. um, and to take the time. Okay. Um, and, you know, as, a, as another point within that, I would say, um, you know, to approach your patients um, with a display of empathy, mm. okay, um, to display, you know, you may not necessarily, um, you know, whether they have, you know, other reasons, uh, secondary or tertiary gain, whatever, it is important to, to display um, compassion and empathy for your patients. Mm. Um, and that allows you to get the most valuable information um, that you need. Um, yeah. And in terms of the second aspect about prescribing, um, I would say that if a patient is in pain, um, we need to address that and you need to be able to prescribe analgesia. Okay, mm. You need to provide pain relief. Mm. And um, if you start low and go slow, 
mm-hmm. with your prescribing um, and always come back to review your patient to make sure that your prescription is working as expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the best way to sort of um, circumvent any issues. Like you, I wouldn't recommend that you prescribe something and then just um, think that the issue has been dealt with um, to always frequently reassess um, your management. Um, so that's in the acute setting and in the post-operative sort of, not post-operative, but post-hospital discharge setting, mm. the person that manages your patient within a shared care model is the primary practitioner, primary care provider. Mm. And so to make sure that you communicate, even if it's just a phone call and you leave, leave a message with the GP to let them know if there's been any um, changes to their medications or if you want them to um, follow up on any of your therapies, C states and whatever. So it's really important to keep that line of communication going. It doesn't just stop the moment the patient leaves the hospital. So whether those, that information is on a discharge summary or it's a phone call, um, yeah, that's one of the things that I would say would be really important. Oh, those are those are really good powers of wisdom. Now, on that note, um, Gloria, was there anything else that you wanted to share with us or, or mention before we uh, com- concluded the podcast at all? Um, I just want to say that you know, pain management is a team sport, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, thank you very much for for tuning in and taking the first step um, into sort of making it less of a scary thing um, and good luck out there. Stay safe. And um, we're always here if you need any advice at all. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gloria, for your time and expertise. Uh, we appreciate it greatly. Thanks for tuning in to Thrive. Pain is extremely complex and its mysteries continue to be unraveled slowly. For me, a great resource would be the therapeutic guidelines for management of particular pain syndromes. This is a nice evidence-based resource. I hope to have you join us again for the next installment of Thrive. Thanks for joining us for Thrive. Don't forget you can access show notes for this podcast through Workplace. Log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. This is your education. Please get in touch and let us know how we're doing meeting your needs, ask us a question, or suggest a topic you'd love to hear us cover. You may also be interested in producing a podcast with us in your area of specialty interest. It's great CV building and an excellent start in medical education. You can contact us at thrive at easternhealth.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.